Well, I, I want to continue on in my message series today on hosting his presence, um, unveiling heaven's agenda. And uh, I want to I talk to you guys about something which is really interesting because I'm sure that everyone that got up here today didn't know what I was talking about. But everything that everyone said, what we worshiped to, um, what, what Nate said, and all these things, all kind of correlating with what I want to speak about to you today, which is this, I want to confront this, um, this idea that the enemy loves to plant into our minds called the lie of insignificance. Say with me, the lie of insignificance. How many of you guys believe that you are significant? You are significant. But the enemy is really good at making you feel like you're not and telling you that you're not. See, religion, religion is brutal. Come on, somebody. Right? Religion is brutal. It's boring and it's cruel. Let's say that together so we can all agree on that. Religion is boring and it's cruel. Right? And it's cruel. That's why Jesus always stresses a relationship with him. We're not anti-religious. We're just anti-religion. We're for Jesus, right? We're for Jesus and what he wants to do. But religion, what it does is, is it keeps you in this middle place between the good and the bad. It keeps reminding you of who you were, right? So that way you can kind of stay in this middle ground. See, what religion does, it says that there's no one so good that they don't need a savior and there's no one so bad that they can't be saved. Come on. And what religion does is it keeps us right in between the two of those, the two of those, uh, two of those ideas. See, when we come to Jesus, we're redeemed. Amen. And in redemption, when we get saved, we are actually restored to a greater place than before we were saved, before the fall, if you will. Okay. See, when the when the Lord restores stuff in the Bible. All right, we're going to unpack a lot of stuff today. So if you're taking notes, follow along the best that you can. When the Lord restores stuff in the Bible, it's restored to a greater, to a greater way. See, if we look at maybe Solomon's temple, remember when Solomon's temple was destroyed, right? And then, they, and then it was restored. It was restored twice as big. Okay, it was restored twice as big when Job lost everything in the Bible in the Old Testament. When Job lost everything, he was restored twice as much. Right? It's the nature of God to restore something to a place greater than before. And that's what salvation did for us. It didn't just punch a ticket for us to go to heaven, but praise God, we're going to heaven. Amen? When we came to Jesus, he restored everything back to a greater way. He redeemed you. You are restored. Okay, the example that I thought of um, in trying to illustrate this is, is about two years ago, my son Samuel, whom I love, broke his arm in Dallas, Texas. He was playing, uh, he was at a youth camp and uh, I don't know, he missed a step or something like that. And I'm getting, I'm just getting like anxiety just thinking about it because it was the worst day of my life, right? Samuel hurt his arm, but that wasn't bad. It was mostly for me, I felt really bad. And, because you know, as a parent, you don't want nothing bad to happen to your kids. So, Boom, he broke his arm. His whole arm snapped just right here on the inside of his wrist. It just went click. You never seen those pictures before online where it just looks like brutal, right? And you're just like, ooh, <laughs> right? That's, how it, that's what it looked like. If I had a picture, I'd show you today, right? It's just, uh, just like that. 
And so we went to the hospital, um, we went to the ER, and the Dallas ER was absolutely awful. And we, we stayed there, I, I'm not gonna try to exaggerate this, probably six hours we were there. And nothing really happened. They put him in a, actually they didn't even put him in a splint. Uh, the, the nurse at the campground put him in a splint, which was just a piece of cardboard with a little bit of ace bandage wrapped on him. And he kept it like that the whole time. For six hours straight in the ER room. Well, the ER said, well, there's nothing we can do for you right now. You need to go see the children's hospital. So we got into an ambulance and we drove to, he drove to the children's hospital. He got there and uh, they fixed him right up. Obviously they had to reset his arm and they didn't allow me in the room for that because I would have just went ballistic crazy, right? I was already feeling it. I actually had to go to a whole nother place. They, they led me to a whole nother place because you know, when someone takes your son's broken arm and they try to reset it so they can actually put it in a cast, obviously that causes a lot of pain, right? And so I, I was walked to a whole different area in the hospital and uh, they, they, took, they took his arm and they just went, crack, and they just reset his arm, okay? <laughs> I could just imagine the pain that he felt. And uh, so he came back in, they had him all wrapped up in a cast and, and all these things and so on and so forth. But the doctor said something very interesting. He says, now when this grows back, it's actually going to grow back stronger than it was before. Yeah. Right? It's going to grow back stronger than it was before. And I want to encourage you today that you may have been broken, but when you came to Jesus, he reset your life. And now you're stronger than you were before. Now, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you go on to sin so you can be restored to a greater place. That's foolish, right? I'm just going to go ahead and sin a little bit more so I can be restored. No, that's not what that means. It simply means that we need to learn to take advantage of the truth that there is no shame when you are forgiven. Let me say that again, because so many people struggle with this idea, but there is no shame when you have been forgiven, when you've truly repented and when you've truly been forgiven. You see, the enemy has told us a lie and, and he's told probably a lie to every person in this room at one point in your life that you are insignificant, that you are your past, that you haven't really been forgiven. Are you really gonna struggle with all the things that you struggled with before Jesus? That you really are gonna be, continue to be a sinner. That you really haven't really moved past all of those things. And see, what religion does is it keeps reminding you of your past so that you can use it, so, they, so religion can use it as a tool kind of to keep us humble, if you will. Now, this is so tricky what religion does because I'm gonna explain something to you where, where maybe you might go, I don't really like that. See, what religion does is it reminds you of your past so that way you remain in humility, but really it's false humility. It's not true humility because if Jesus really did forgive you, did he forgive you or what? See, what is the blood of Christ for anyway? Is it to postpone penalty or did it really eradicate everything from your past and made you brand new? We have to believe this in order for us to take our rightful place 
And, and for us to stand in the place where God has set us, we have to believe that the cross conquered everything for me and you. It conquered everything for us. That we no longer are the way that we were. Because the blood of Christ, guys, listen, when you come to Jesus, the blood of Christ has set you free. And the Bible says that you are free indeed. All things are passed away and behold, everything becomes new. You've been reset. So that way you can grow stronger. If I identify with that past life and that thought of sin that's been forgiven, then I now position myself to actually believe a lie about myself. Because the truth is, is that, path, that past no longer exists. However, how many times do believers actually believe that there's still their past? That there's still that person? Ah, brother, I'm just a sinner. I'll always be one. I mean, can, can, you, can you sense the way that feels? Right? And when we position ourselves and we align ourselves to actually believe that we are our past, we position ourselves to agree with the lie that's in our head that the enemy has spoken over us. And unfortunately, it happens more than we think. Again, when you're forgiven, you truly are forgiven. See, if I give my heart and my mind to the lie of who I was, then I, in turn, agree with the liar. Then I, in return, believe more about what he says about me than what my father says about me. It's unfortunate that a lot of believers in today's world, and I'm talking to believers here this morning, so if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, I want you to know something today, that today is the day where you can meet the greatest Savior in the world. Today's the day. If you haven't already experienced him, I don't know about you, but I felt Jesus in this room. I feel him right now. He's here. And why is he here? He's here to meet with you and to be with you. But it's unfortunate today that a lot of believers still believe the lie that they are who they were, not who they are now in Christ. See, how else does the enemy kill, steal, and destroy? Because that's what the Bible says, yes? The Bible says that the enemy goes around seeking who may be devour, killing, stealing, and destroy whom he pleases. How does he do that? Because to be honest with you, the devil has no power, amen? The devil has no power over the life of a believer. We have to believe that, guys. No, I don't think you understand. We have to believe that the devil has no authority over your life. None. Zero. He is nothing compared to Christ. The only authority the devil has is the authority that we give him. And that is when we agree with what he says about us. When we agree. I appreciate all of the programs that are out there. And I've, and I've done this for a long time. And I've, this is what I hear. And, 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 and I still try to wrap my head around this. So, so I, I understand. But when people come out of like addiction or something like that, they, they continue to identify with, I'm, I'm just a recovering alcoholic, even though it's been 44 years, you've been sober, right? I, I, under, I, I understand the sentiment, but, but can, I just, can I just challenge that a little bit? Can I just encourage it a little bit that you are not that alcoholic anymore? You are not that person that you once were. You don't need to identify any longer with the lie that says you are always gonna be an alcoholic and that you'll always fall to that alcoholism. It's not true. Because you are set free by Christ and his blood. 
And we have to believe this in order for us to live in the significance that God has called us to believe in. See, if there's true repentance and forgiveness, then that past, that past, someone say past, that past no longer exists. If we've truly repented and come before the Lord. And so the one thing the devil's really good at is keeping us aware of our past. And he likes to bring it up to remind us of what's, of who we are, of what we'll never get over. He likes to convince us that that's our personality, that that's our, that's how we're always going to be. Well, I'll always be this way because I've always been this way. And that's how mom was. And that's how dad was. And that's how grandma and grandpa was. Let me tell you, God is into breaking the generational curses in your life. He's into breaking the generational lines that have set your course, that set the course of your life for a, for a bad way. God can turn it around for good if we simply just believe in what he has done for us on the cross. That's why we have to have a renewed mind to actually think of ourselves as God thinks of us. And how we think of ourselves isn't an arrogant thought. Because this happens a lot of the times too with believers. We, we think of ourselves as this high mighty person and we snub our nose down to people who are dealing with stuff. Let me just tell you, that's a spiritual pride. Maybe you deal with that, maybe you don't. But if we truly have come to Christ, Christ always leads us in a place of grace and love for people. Always. We can never take the place of high and mighty. We know this. We know that. We're above all of this. No. We have to remember that he paid the price for us. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be nowhere. Right? Be nowhere. So it's not an arrogant thought to think of yourself the way God thinks of you. Because in all essence, in just plain, simple reality, God thinks very well of you. He actually likes you. <laughs> your husband may not like you. Your wife may not like you. And I know your kids don't like you. <laughs> tease. But Jesus actually does like you. And he really does love you. I say this all the time, um, that I'm God's favorite. And why do you say that? I mean, no, I mean let's, just, let's just be honest. Let's just be real here, right? Because you have that in you too. You should really think that you're God's favorite. Now, okay, now I'm, you know I'm just playing, right? God doesn't play favorites. I understand that, okay? But I like to think of myself, me and him, just sitting in a room, visiting with one another because he likes to be with me. Because he loves to be with me. See, God, Jesus, he thinks very confidently of you. He is confident in you. Do you know that Jesus trusts you? He trusts you. See, I think that's a lost word in today's culture because we've been stabbed so many times in the back and we've been told one thing yet given another. Crazy government. That's a side note, right? We get told this one thing, yet another thing happens, and we've just kind of lost trust. The, the, the idea and the culture of trust has just been lost, has been broken. But I want you to know that God trusts you. He trusts you. How do I know? 
that you are significant and that I'm significant in God. We know that he trusts us and he believes in us. I remember ministering to this one girl one time, the Lord highlighted her me down the street, so I pulled over and, and it's super weird, right? That, that, but you know, when God speaks, you gotta just do it, right? Because I'm held accountable to his word. I'm not held accountable to man. And so I just promised, hey, uh, um, the Lord wants me to tell you that, that, uh, that he trusts you, that he loves you. He goes, well, I don't, she goes, I don't even believe in God. That's too bad because he believes in you. Even when we don't believe, the Father still believes in you to carry his name. How do we know that God trusts us? How do we know that he's confident with us? How do we know that we're significant? By realizing what he's entrusted to us. And what is he entrusted to us? Well, he's entrusted to us his name, first of all. But he's also entrusted to us his precious Holy Spirit. I mean, let's think about this for a second. In Luke chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. See, you can speak against Jesus and you'll be forgiven. This is how precious the Holy Spirit is to God. You can speak against, the God, speak against God and you'll be forgiven. But you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. See, one of the greatest things Jesus could have done for us outside of salvation is give us the gift of his presence, of his Holy Spirit. See, now he trusts you so much that he said, I can just picture it in heaven, right? He trusts you so much and people to carry his name. He says, you see those people down there, guys? He's looking around the Trinity, right? He's going, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You see those people down there? I believe in them so much and I trust them so much that I'm going to send to them my most treasured, treasured gift and that is the Spirit to fill them and to be with them. And sometimes I ask myself, why would God give us this powerful, sweet Spirit from heaven? Why would he do such a thing? Why would he entrust me with that? Why would he entrust you with that? Well, because he loves you. Because you're significant. Because you matter to him. Every little bit of you. Everything. Hear me. Everything. Everything that you are matters to God. Everything does. I've learned that if I think things about me that he isn't thinking about me, that I'm actually believing a lie about me. I can't afford to have a thought in my mind that's not in his for me. And it's really easy to fall into because when we mess up or we make a mistake or we actually kind of get convinced that we're something else, we feel shame, we feel bad about ourselves, we feel like, God, why did I do this? What just happened? And all of a sudden, the enemy comes in and starts to lie to you and says, see, I told you you never get past this. See, I told you this will never happen. I told you this is what's gonna happen. I see, those thoughts aren't in God's mind for you. So what we have to do in those moments is we have to turn a deaf ear to those and say, see my pinky, see my palm, poof, be gone, devil. I don't want to hear that anymore, right? I want to focus my attention to Jesus, the one that I worship. Not focus on my past, not focus on who I was or even what I just did. You see, because if you highlight the things that you just did or the past that you are, that will eventually become bigger than the God that you serve. And you'll always feel like you can't accomplish and be successful to move forward in your life. But God wants you to know that if we just turn our attention to Jesus, 
the author, the finisher of our faith, that we will move in confidence in him. We'll move in confidence in him. See, this whole idea of the renewed mind is not about arrogance apart from God, but it's a confidence we develop from God about what he says about us. If I believe what he says about me, then my life is lived differently because of that word. Amen? My life will reflect the Father's voice over me more than what the enemy says about me. See, whenever you get someone who is confident about what God says about them and they actually believe it, to those who don't believe and who aren't confident, it looks like arrogance to them. But a lot of the times, faith looks like arrogance to those who don't believe. But authentic confidence in God and what he's accomplished for us through the cross is central to the preaching, living, and teaching of the gospel. And this whole issue of insignificance because of lies is a weapon the enemy uses to keep us bound from the Father's great goodness. Because all God wants to do is just douse you with his love. He just wants to saturate you with his goodness. And we reject that sometimes because we think we're not worthy for that. But I want you to know that you are. That you are. See, there's four truths central to this idea. And I think it's not anywhere written down, but this is just kind of our church in a nutshell. And we do our very, very best to try to, to champion these. Right? The number one truth, and I'm just going to run these through these real quick is there's nothing impossible with God. How many believe that? Amen. There's nothing impossible with God. The second one, truth that we have to believe is God is good. Amen. Every day. And, I, and I say that, and in a setting like this, it's really easy to say yes and amen, pastor. But what about when your child's sick and not getting better? Will we still believe that God is good? What about when you don't have what you need? Will we still believe that God is good? What about when you're praying for healing for yourself and you're not getting healed? Will we still believe that God is good? It's the foundational theology that we have to place our lives in because he is always good. Why? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. The third central truth is everything was accomplished at Calvary. Everything was accomplished at the cross. And the last one that we try to champion is you are significant in the kingdom of God. You are significant. You are. Point to yourself and say, I am significant. Now point to the person next to you and say, you're kind of. So no, I'm just fine. Say, you are significant. You're significant. When you discover who God made you to be, you'll never want to be anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> Say it again, Pastor. Okay, I will. <laughs> when you discover who God made you to be, you'll never want to be anyone else. Yeah. So stop trying to be. Amen. You just be who God created you to be. See, this whole message series is all about hosting the presence of God 
We're gonna shift gears because it's important for us to know that we're significant. It's all gonna tie in. It's important to know that we're significant. Why? Because God values your presence as much as we value his. Come on, let me say that again. God values your presence as much as we value his. Now, I know some of you here. I know some of you quite well. And if you had a king or a queen, say, I'm coming over to your house for supper or some kind of dignitary, you, you name it, okay? Whatever you want. And they said, we're coming over to your house. Now, some of you would like repaint your whole home. Okay? You're like, oh crap. Oh, oh, oh man. Oops. <laughs> like, oh man, some, 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 someone, someone important's coming over. We better, we better get out the fine china. Get out the fine china, Judy. Right? Like, let's get it. Let's, we got to get it all out. Okay? Or you just scratch everything. You go buy new. You just go buy new stuff. Right? I know you'd make the greatest meal. No one can come into your kitchen. Right? And it should be that way because you want to honor the person that's coming over. Right? If I come over, you're just like, yeah, bathroom's down the back. Make yourself at home. I don't have any sandwich meat, but there's some spam in the cupboard. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you, because I like spam. <laughs> you see, hosting the presence of God is a lot like that. Because we're not just hosting the presence, we're actually hosting a person. We're hosting the person of God, who is resting upon us. And what we do with our personal lives is, is, is when we're aware of his presence, when we're aware that we're hosting a person, what we need to do is we restructure and we reorganize our lives. We take things out that aren't important anymore. We, 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 we give those things over to God, the lies we believe, the things that would keep us unaware of God's presence. We say, God, I need you to work this out in me so I can shift this out of my life so that way you are more welcome in my life. Now, I don't know about you, right? But how many of us want God to be a part of our lives? How many of us want more of Jesus to be part of our lives? See, what we do as normal believers is we leave Jesus to the Sunday morning and then we kind of go about our day, we kind of go about our week forgetting that he's even around. I want to encourage you today that that can no longer be the case anymore. We cannot be unaware and live our lives unaware any longer of the presence of God. We need to reorganize and restructure our lives so that way we can see Jesus in everywhere that we go and every place that we're at. No matter what that place looks like, physically or spiritually in our lives. I had the great opportunity last night to go watch our awesome guitar player, Robert Lasky, play at Butterfest. And you would think, Ugh, look at these people here. Ugh. Can't believe they're drinking. You know, you'd probably be there too. Right? Ugh, let me tell you, man, I'm standing there and I'm watching Robert rock out with his hat on. Right? And I'm looking across the people and I'm going to go, man, Jesus loves these people. And I'm saying to myself, man, these people need an encounter with God. They need somebody to love them. Because when you look at how you see lost and despair and hopelessness, 
Aren't you glad that Jesus saved you? Why would we keep that gift away from somebody because we're afraid or we're scared? We're nervous about what they say. Or we don't have all the right answers. You don't have to have all the right answers. You just have to lead with love. So I'm talking to the person smoking a cigarette right next to me. How you doing? Good. Isn't God good? Both, both pass. See, our lives, you and I, we're called to be priests unto the Lord. Now, I'm going to say it by faith, and I want you to say amen by faith because you're going to find out what that means. You're called to be a priest unto the Lord. See, Exodus chapter 19, verse 6 says this. Now, this is Moses, okay? Let me set up the story for you. Moses is hearing from the Lord, hearing from God the Father, right? And God speaks to the people through Moses, and he says, I want you to tell the people, this in, this, in Exodus 19, 6, he says, I want you to tell them that you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says to the Israelites, to the Israel people, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. So basically what God is telling Moses, he said, hey Moses, tell the Israelites that they are to be priests to me. Okay? Then we fast forward to Isaiah chapter 61, verse six. And he says, but you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of God. So here we have Moses, God speaking through Moses saying, you're gonna be priests. And then we got Isaiah prophesying, you're gonna be priests. You guys tracking with me, following this? Okay? And then we fast forward all the way through the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And then it says this, Peter, Peter stands up full of the Holy Spirit and he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, God, for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what's the point? In the Old Testament, it was the heart of God for all of Israel to turn them to priests of the Lord. It was God's heart for everyone that was there to be a priest, to minister unto the Lord. And Israel missed that opportunity. Hear me, guys. Israel missed that opportunity. Of course, this is Old Testament. I want us to understand that. Israel missed the opportunity because they chose, they made a decision not to minister to the Lord themselves. What they chose to do was they said, Moses, you go minister to God. You hear what he has to say and then come tell us and we'll just listen and obey. God was inviting them into a relationship. God was inviting them into a place where they now can have one-on-one -on -one connection with him. But they said, nah, that's not, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it because I'm not good enough. They believe the lie of insignificance. We're not good enough. So therefore, Moses, you go, all right? Because you had the burning bush experience. You had this, you had that. You go and listen for us. And because of that, they missed a whole opportunity and centuries and generations of people didn't have that communication with God. So God says in Exodus to the people, you're going to be priests. They chose no. Isaiah rolls around, okay? 
and prophesies, hey, everybody, you're going to be priests, right? You're going to be priests. It's still future tense. You're going to be priests. Not you are, but you're going to be priests. Now we fast forward to New Testament again. Jesus dies. He comes. He goes on the cross, right? He goes to the cross. Peter rises up and says, you are priests now. It's already been prophesied here in Exodus. It's already been prophesied in Isaiah. Now you are the fulfillment. He's telling the Israelites, you are the fulfillment now of what's been prophesied for centuries. You are the fulfillment. And he says, you are a royal priesthood. You're not only just a priest, but you're a royal priesthood. So what's that mean? When you're born again, you're born into royalty. You're born into royalty when you're born again. Why? Because he is the king of kings. He is royalty. So when you come to him and you're born again, you're no longer the person that you were. You are now born into a new paradigm. You're born into a royal family. And God looks at you as royalty, a royal priesthood. That's who you are. See, what's the point? Why priest? A priest has two separate ministries. This is really important to understand. A priest has two separate ministries. In the Old Testament, priests were there to minister to God and minister to people. You guys tracking? Okay. So I want us to understand this. When God calls you and you're born again into the royal priesthood, you are now able to minister to God, which is our first and foremost duty as a, as, as a priest, is to minister to God, and then to minister to people. Now, in that ministry to people, there's two certain things that we minister. We minister to believers. This is the, this is the responsibilities of a priest. We minister to believers, then we minister to non-believers, to the world. Something happened. Artina, if you can come back up, if it's, never mind. Can you just play some music back there? Thanks. It's not hooked up. It's all good. <laughs> Something happened to me in 1997. Let me rewind back a little bit. 1995, a revival broke out in Brownsville. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's called the Brownsville Revival, Brownsville, Florida, okay? The evangelist at the time, his name was Stephen Hill. A church, a little bigger than ours, but not much different, was desiring a move of God was crying out for Jesus. They were being priests. They were just ministering to the Lord. And something happened in that revival. See, I grew up in the church. Anybody with me? Did you guys grow up in church? I grew up in church. I grew up in the Assemblies of God church. Literally, like, my mama had me, and two weeks later, I'm in the, I'm in the pew. I was that kid who wrote on all the uh, offering envelopes. And I made paper airplanes, and I threw them. I was, that, I was that kid. 
And all my life I grew up singing about God. I grew up singing about how good he was, about, about him. I, we, the key phrase is about, I, I sang about him, but something changed in me at the Brownsville Revival when I went in 1997. God did a work in me where I stopped singing about him and I started singing to him. See, there's a difference. I can sing about God all day long, which is great, but it's something different when we minister to the Lord rather than ministering about the Lord. And I told myself, my life, my worship, from this day forward in 1997, I was just my first year of master's commission in college. My life will never be the same. An unfolding of what it truly means to worship God and host him with my life, not just in song, not just in deed, but with everything that I am. And to be real honest with you, if I can be, which I'm going to be, you don't have a choice, is this is still an unfolding journey. See, if you ever come to the point where we think we've arrived, we've actually not arrived, we've missed it. Because God wants us to continue to move in him, to walk with him, to take steps in him. Yeah, you may have figured some stuff out along the way, praise God, you have a good foundation. But God wants to continue to grow in your life. The Bible says that we move from glory to glory that we keep on growing. There's things that I believe now that 10 years ago, I didn't believe at all. That God has changed the way that I thought about those things. Why? Because we move, we walk with him, we grow with him. And God is still unfolding this idea of what it means to really truly minister to the Lord. There's this great story in the Bible in John chapter four. It's the woman of the well. You guys know what I mean? They're having this conversation with this woman at the well and Jesus prophesies over and says, you've got a ton of husbands and, you know, all these kinds of things. They're having this conversation about, you know, where worshipers are going to worship. We're going to worship on the mount. You know, we can't worship because we're this way. And, and they're having this conversation. And Jesus said these, this profound, amazing statement. He says, the father looks for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now notice he doesn't say that the Father looks for worship. He doesn't desire worship, he looks for worshipers. He looks for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So why does God desire worshipers? How many of you guys believe that God doesn't need anything? It's pretty true, right? It's pretty self-sufficient. I'd say, right? Why does God, why does God desire worshipers? He desires worshipers because he loves us. Because he desires us. Because he trusts us. Because you're significant to him. Because he wants us. He doesn't need us. He wants us. There's a difference between being wanted and being needed, isn't there? He wants us. He desires worshipers because we always become like what we worship. We always reflect what we worship. We always become what we worship. And is there anything better than being like him? See, it's out of his love he chooses us to be worshipers so we can be transformed to be like him.
In Psalms chapter 22, 3, and I'm going to go through this because we're running out of time. But in Psalms 22, 3, I'm going to paraphrase it. It says that you're enthroned upon the praises of your people. Now, I want you to picture this with me, that the very praise that we did this morning, God comes and he rests upon that enthronement. It's not like, it's not like he just comes down with the throne. No, our praises are his throne. Okay? We, he is enthroned upon the praises of his people. So what do we have to offer God? What do we, as people, as worshipers, have to offer God? If he's all-sufficient, what do we have to offer him? Well, number one, the Bible says that when you come into his courts, you come into with thanksgiving, right? First. So you come in with a heart of thanksgiving. So you have a heart of thanksgiving right over here. And God says, um, 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 we, 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 uh, we, we purposely thank him for his acts. Okay? We thank him for what he's done. Now, come on, somebody. Can we just be thankful to God for something that he's done? Okay, so we're thankful for his acts. And then it says we move from it. We move from being thankful, then we move into his courts with praise. Okay, see, over here we thank him for his acts, for providing. We actually come over here in the courts of praise, and we now declare that he's the provider. There's a difference. We thank him for providing. We declare here that he's the provider. It says in the Bible that we bring a sacrifice of praise. What does it mean to bring a sacrifice to praise? It means actually being inconvenienced in your own feelings to praise God. It literally means when you don't feel like praising God, you declare him outside of your feelings. So we thank him for his acts. Thank you. We declare him that he's the provider. But nowhere in scripture can I find. We offer God a, thanks, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We offer God a sacrifice of praise. But nowhere in scripture can I find that we offer God a sacrifice of worship. There's nowhere in scripture you can find that. Why? Because my life is a living sacrifice of worship. and to host his presence, not just within a service, not just within a gathering, not just in your home with a, with a home group or a, or a church home or, or whatever the case is, not just when you meet with two or three, but to host his presence literally means to thank him for his acts. Declare he's the provider. Give him a sacrifice of praise but now live in this place where your life is a continual life of worship to him. Because your praise in your life, when you worship him with your life, God's enthroned on the praises of his people. He now becomes a resting place in your life. He now comes and settles himself upon you so that way, everything points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. I have a lot more to say here, but just watch online sometime this week. I'll, I'll have it all there.
But as I close, it's important to know that you are valuable because he desires to rest on you. He desires to come and just be with you because he loves you. You are valuable. You are significant because he loves you. And what I want to pray for today, obviously I'll have the ministry team come up here in just a few moments. And if you've got things going on in your life that you just need another person just to kind of lock hands with you and just pray and believe with you for, we want to do that with you, okay? But if you could just bow your head and close your eyes as we close. And there's just uh, two questions I'm going to ask here today. Number one question is this. Is there anybody here today that you don't know who Jesus is personally, but you want to know him? I just have this sense in my heart that I never want to end something without giving an opportunity for someone to meet Jesus because the harvest is right. The harvest is ready to go, man. Ready to go. Is there anybody here today that says, you know what, man, I need to give my life to Jesus. Just raise your hand, put it right back down. Is there anybody here that says, that's me, pastor, pray for me. Praise God. Hallelujah. The second thing I just want to pray for, if you can with me, just prophetically, just put your hands over your heart. And to say, Father, create a heart of tenderness and awareness of your presence. I want all my life to worship you. Thank you, Jesus. So seal it right now, Father, in our hearts that, God, as we go out from this place, that, Lord, we would not leave, God, in some way, shape, or form. Tomorrow morning will be the test. God, tomorrow, when we get home, will be the test that you are with us and that you count us as significant because you desire to be with us in our homes. You desire to be with us in our, in our lives. You desire to be with us in our hearts. Father, we bless you. We honor you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.